Hi, good morning. Welcome to the Papa Cast. This is Mark Papa. I'm the Chief Investment Officer, uh, Financial Resources Group, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Um, anything we say on this podcast does not constitute investment advice. Please seek uh, the advice of a professional. Uh, but today, we're going to be talking about a very exciting topic, uh, cryptocurrency. And uh, I'm lucky to have a gentleman who I recently met uh, by the name of Stephen Jordan, who is an expert in Bitcoin, um, who's going to sit back and tell us a little bit about why cryptocurrency in general and uh, Bitcoin and blockchain is such a uh, fascinating emerging market and why it's drawing a lot of attention. How are you today, Stephen? I'm doing well. Thanks, Mark. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for uh, coming on the show. Um, so why don't you give us uh, the audience a little bit of your background and uh, what you know, tell me a little bit about you and what you've done in the past and then all of a sudden how you've become uh, so so um, well versed on cryptocurrency. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, so I studied finance and entrepreneurship in college. I went to Boston University uh, and after that I joined GE. So I started in their financial management program. It's a two-year uh, training program, rotational. So I was in Connecticut, New York and Germany and Connecticut and Got to travel all over and uh, fascinating. Yeah, you know, and you got to see different businesses. Got to work with different managers. Mm -hmm. On top of that, you're taking training courses as well. So it was like an MBA combined with a full time job. Well, that's amazing. Yeah, that sounds like an exciting opportunity. Yeah. And then, uh, so how did that lead you into becoming more interested in, in the investment side of the business or investing or other other areas? Yeah. So I'd always had a passion for investing. I was always curious about it. Always. Loved learning more about it. Uh, and so after I finished that two-year program, I joined GE Capital in New York City uh, with the private equity lending group. So wow. we, worked, we worked with private equity firms uh, when they're making uh, you know, mergers and acquisitions. We worked on the financing portion of that. So I was in credit underwriting and portfolio management, mm -hmm. evaluating you know, different acquisitions uh, and evaluating whether that was a good investment from a debt perspective for GE Capital. Yeah, and from what I was, uh, from my recollection, I, um, I was told that it was very difficult to get a loan from GE. You had to be like a prime credit and a prime candidate and really have your ducks in a row to get their money. Was that, that true? Yeah, that was true. Um, and you know, an interesting thing I started to notice there is in the aftermath of the financial crisis in 2009, we saw a lot of regulation increase. So Dodd-Frank gets enacted, Mm -hmm. uh, leverage lending guidelines. There's a lot of stuff flowing through the banking system. And I saw that firsthand, how that impacted our business at GE Capital, how we had to jump through a lot more hoops. We had to go through a lot more approval steps and everything took a lot of time and was very inefficient because of the increased regulatory burden. Well, right. if a company needs to borrow money, guess what? They, they, they need it now or, you know, months down the road. Yeah, and, and money's, it's a commodity. You know, you could... Right. For uh, money's green, and um, so for a lot of these firms, you know, it was tough to compete with these newer, let's say, lightly regulated firms that we were competing against that could provide five hundred million dollars in four days. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. And I was—I remember going back to my finance professor said it's easier to borrow a hundred million than it is at five or ten million. Yeah, it's amazing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, 
That's pretty interesting. So yeah. that's a that's a pretty impressive background, especially for someone young guy like yourself. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like you get an extremely solid foundation. Mm -hmm. So why don't we talk a bit? Of, we were chatting before the podcast a little bit about the Bank of the United States, and sure. I learned about that story through a book by Andy Kessler. Um, it was uh, like the history of venture capital in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, why don't you talk a little bit about that story about Bank of the United States and how it, there's some parallels to cryptocurrency, uh, th which could be the currency of the future. Sure, sure. Uh, so yeah, I mean, interesting, you know, trivia for the United States monetary policy is the first bank of the United States was formed after the American Revolution. And this was the original Alexander Hamilton, you know, of Hamilton fame. Right. Uh, he was the head proponent of the first central bank of the United States. The opponent, head opponent was Jefferson. And it was the original banking versus farming debate, which has continued to this day, 250 years later, just in a different form. Interesting. Um, so the first bank of the United States, I believe it lasted for about 20, 25 years. And then the charter was revoked. Primarily because they started printing too much of the currency. And the <laughs> currency started to go down in value. Sounds people, familiar. <laughs> people lost faith in the currency and it, you know, sort of collapsed and they revoked the charter. Interesting. 20 years later, fast forward, we come to the second bank of the United States where you have a lot of this, you know, similar types of players around um, and the banking interests and the money, the merchant class, just, you know, they wanted to form the central bank. The second central bank of the United States lasted for also about 20, 25 years. Uh, and Andrew Jackson, I think it was 1829, his platform was to end the central bank monopoly on money and end the national debt. And he achieved those two things. And he was, you know, extremely popular war hero, ended the central bank and eliminated the national debt. Interesting. And then, you know, we, we enter this period from the 1830s until the 1910s where there is no central bank in the United States. Imagine that. No Federal Reserve. No Federal Reserve. Yeah. So, you know, this was the free banking era um, and diff various states, various banks, they issued their own currencies. These currencies were backed by gold and silver deposits. And if a bank couldn't prove they had the reserves, people would take their money out of the bank. That bank would collapse and they'd go to a stronger right. bank. What they call a run on the bank, basically. Correct. Kind of like what happened Correct. in the Depression. Yes. And so that was a free market banking system, though. You know, there was no head of the central bank saying this is what interest rates are. This is how much currency we have. This was dictated more or less by the free market. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we don't have that today, obviously. Highly regulated. Um, no. No. <laughs> I mean, we, you know, in, in 1913, we moved into the third central bank of the United States, which is the Federal Reserve. Um, and, you know, this is a private for-profit entity. Right. Um, Everyone thinks that the Federal Reserve is part of the government, but the, yeah, it's not. That's That was a great marketing trick that they pulled, you know, calling it federal, thinking that it's backed by the government. It's not. And then reserve, thinking that it's, you know, a reserve currency backed by something. It's not. Um, so, you know, that was that was an interesting marketing trick. Um, but yeah, this is the, the, we're on the third version of the central bank in the United right. States. And then obviously during the depression, we saw the banks collapse, right? There was no FDIC. There was yeah. none of the, the safeties or the backstops that we have today. 
And they, we're starting to see, we hear the naysayers about Bitcoin mm -hmm. or cryptocurrency say it's not backed by anything. Mm -hmm. It's not backed by gold and silver. It's not backed by tax revenue. Why should I invest in something that has no, no, no store of value and it's just a, um, you know, sitting on some server somewhere? And, 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 and now I know there's different currencies where, uh, for example, Dogecoin, it actually allows an unlimited supply of currency to be created, whereas Bitcoin is only 2%, I think, a year mm -hmm. increase where you can mine it. Why don't we talk a little bit about that? Um, why don't you give us a background of the, of the cryptocurrency and why it's, uh, you know, why it's parallel? Why did it become popular to begin with? Sure. And what, what really made uh, somebody like uh, create the Bitcoin in the first place? What, what was the catalyst? So the 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 background here is, is Bitcoin was released in 2008-2009 timeframe by a pseudonymous inventor named Satoshi Nakamoto. To this day, no one knows who Satoshi is. They don't know if it was a person, a group, no one knows. Uh, and Bitcoin was when Bitcoin was released, the white paper explaining the whole system and how it works, Satoshi also included a newspaper headline. This is during the financial, the financial collapse, so the banking collapse. Bitcoin is released during that tumultuous time frame where the banking system is in free fall. Right. So Satoshi is saying, look, this is the system we have. This system's collapsing. Right, exactly, Here's, I remember it collapsing. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, it was very scary, right? That was a very scary time. Extremely. And this is the alternative system that exists outside of that central banking monopoly, that central banking paradigm. And Bitcoin itself, um, you know, prior to 2009, I mean, there were many versions of digital cash, e-cash, other online currencies that were attempted in the, in, you know, in the past that failed. Interesting. So Bitcoin itself so Bitcoin is... Bitcoin is not, not new. It's just it's a new not, version of something else. Correct. It's just a more perfected version of historical digital currencies. Interesting. So it took... I had no idea about that. I thought they were the first... Yeah, that's yeah. really interesting. Yeah, you know, and, and it took, it pick and chose the best parts of all these historical predecessors. And um, so Bitcoin, you know, gets launched and it starts from zero. There's no company, there's no CEO, there's no marketing department, there's no nothing. Bitcoin exists because people believe in it and people devote and, you know, volunteer their time and their resources to securing, protecting, and growing the Bitcoin network. So when we say it's not backed by anything, I would argue that Bitcoin is backed by energy. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And how would you define energy in a way? So in just let's think about gold mining. There's, you know, in the world today, there's two Olympic pool size loads of gold in the world right and every year it's really energy intensive time intensive resource intensive to get new gold out of the ground right so that's why historically gold the inflation the supply of gold has grown at about two percent a year which makes it a pretty good money because it's hard you can't just print new gold you have to go mine it out of the ground right that's why gold in the you know historically has been a good 
backbone for commerce, for money, for a monetary system because it can't be manipulated as much and because there's gold all around the world. Right. So no one monopolized the supply of gold. Sure. So in the same sense, Bitcoin, it has to be mined. It's not created out of thin air. It, it requires energy. It requires computational resources. And it's this energy that's protected by cryptography, by cryptographic, you know, advanced mathematics. The same, the same, um, you know, encryption technology that the, the military uses is what's used to secure the Bitcoin network. So it's backed by the energy required to produce an incremental Bitcoin. Yeah, and not, not to get off topic, but I've heard that Bitcoin, the Bitcoin network and the blockchain itself uses so much energy yeah. just, to, just to keep it running that it, it, it creates like all sorts of uh, you know, carbon uh, whatever release. It's really bad for the environment, I'm hearing that. But I don't know, you know, I don't know uh, how true that is, but again, sure. that's just another, sounds like just another attack on, on it, but uh, that's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. so, so Bitcoin, so you have your Bitcoins, and now we have a lot of other, um, other, a lot of other currencies that are out there starting to emerge. So we have the Ethereum. Now, is Ethereum a currency or is Ethereum more of a network? How does that, how, how would you explain Ethereum? Because I, I think a lot of people misunderstand Ethereum. Yeah, I, th I think it's both. You know, I think that we're kind of blurring the lines here. Ethereum, just like Bitcoin, it's its own separate monetary system with its, its, its own, you know, governance structure, its own supply structure, demand. It's its, its own ecosystem because it doesn't exist in the U.S. dollar ecosystem. So mm -hmm. it's outside of that. Um, so Bitcoin... And, you know, Ethereum, Dogecoin, whatever, they, they are currencies because you can use them to exchange value with other people, which is the function of a currency. But they're also a monetary network. I see. So is that like a blockchain in and of itself? Yeah. Ethereum, um, Ethereum is built on blockchain technology. They have... It's different from Bitcoin in many ways, but it's similar in a lot of them as well, where you're using cryptography, so advanced mathematics, to secure a network and to secure the operating systems. Interesting. Okay. And it requires energy to create new units and energy to transact value. Okay. Pretty cool. And now what about some of the Dogecoins, for example? I heard it was kind of created by a joke by two former IBM employees and... Now it's, you know, all the rage. We have Elon Musk in, involved. We have all the people on Reddit involved. Do, do you see a future in that type of coin? Or do you think that's something that may, kind of like the old digital pay, pay currencies prior to Bitcoin, you know, or like the railroads, you know, there were all the railroad companies and all the auto companies. You start off with a whole bunch of people competing, but only a certain amount make it, right? Mm -hmm. The capitalist system, the creative destruction uh, kind of eliminates the, those folks. What do, you, what do you see happening with some of these uh, altcoins, alternative currencies to Bitcoin. If, if Bitcoin is the, the standard bearer, right? Sure. It is the ultimate, um, you know, the, the, the benchmark for, for the industry. Where do you see sure. some of these others emerging currencies going? Yeah, I mean, I think in, in Bitcoin terms, like if you price everything in Bitcoin, over the long term, everything trends towards zero. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, in 2017, 2018, 19, we saw the ICO craze, the initial coin offering where people were coming out and they're saying, oh, here's my white paper for a new cryptocurrency. I'm going to raise $50 million. And then nothing ever happened. A lot of people got burned. Interesting. I didn't know that either. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was a bit, and they were mostly built on top of the Ethereum blockchain. So Ethereum as the backbone and a lot of investors were launching their new cryptocurrencies and right. you know just like most things like you said you know 95 percent of them fail they go to zero right um so dogecoin yeah as far as i know it was created as more or less a joke um and it's been like a, this meme coin and it's been meme to a f whatever the 15 billion dollar market cap out yeah, of nothing it's you know? amazing um so that's you know the I don't know what the future of Dogecoin is. I look at this stuff from a 30, 50, 100 year investment perspective. So that's one thing, you know, we talked about the supply. There's a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. There only will ever be 21 million at most. So I know I can price things. If I know if I have 10 Bitcoin, I own 10 out of 21 million Bitcoin. Right. Dogecoin, unlimited supply. Right. I, I don't know what I own as a percentage of the pie because the pie is always changing in size. Right. So that might be, if you're a trader, I'm not a trader, I'm an investor. So I want to be able to invest my money in something that I could go to sleep, wake up in 10 years and still be comfortable with that investment. Right, and knowing so that's that, not Dogecoin to me. Right, even with a little volatility over the long haul, you should be in 10 year time horizon, it should be worth more than it is today. Correct. Right, and that's just like the market. In 10 years, you know, we figure, okay, it could crash. But it could be worth more 10 years from now. You're going to have your blips in the radar. It's a necessary evil of our system. Correct. Um, and that same goes. So, um, you know, you touched upon a very interesting point prior in, in your conversation when you talked about GE Capital, about um, all the regulation. Mm -hmm. And how much regulatory risk do you foresee or do you think can happen um, in, in, you know, for, for digital currency or for Bitcoin? And it could be, uh, and you know, my opinion is that I see it as a validation of something of the currency itself. If they need to regulate it, that means it's here to stay. Mm -hmm. However, what type of regulatory risks or constraints have you have you heard about that could possibly really damage uh, the reputation or hurt hurt this uh, type of currency in this marketplace? Mm -hmm. And and a lot of it could be politically motivated because you can't print more Bitcoin, but you can print more dollars, and it's a competitor. And it's a competitor to a lot of the what they call fiat currency, which is ultimately paper money issued by central banks around the world. That's what they call fiat. So this is non-fiat. What do you think the risks are? Uh, you know, I in the, in the Bitcoin space, we talk about this in in more large game theory perspective. So. Think about that multiple governments have banned Bitcoin in air quotes. Banned Bitcoin. China's banned Bitcoin four times, right? Right. <laughs> you know, India's banned Bitcoin. They're on their third ban. The Communist Party probably all owns it in Singapore. Yeah, but, they ban know. it and they quietly, you know, they're putting Bitcoin in their pockets. <laughs> I'm sure they are. Right? But what we see is you well, can't... Weren't they creating their own? The Chinese? Uh, yeah, their central bank, the digital yuan. And yeah. then, um, and I know um, Facebook was trying to create one as well called Libra. Libra. Yeah. And they faced a ton of uh, pushback from the yeah. regulators. Yeah, well, it's, they're, because they are, it's a very different proposition when you say, look, I'm Facebook, I'm this monopoly myself, I'm going to combine with up 20 other, you know, companies, we're going to create a, 
a stable coin, a dollar, basically, to compete against the U.S. dollar. That's a very different proposition than like, hey, over here we have this decentralized currency. There's no companies at the top. There's no people at the top that you can leverage and say, look, you need to get this Bitcoin under check or else we're going to put you in jail. There's, There's no one... There's no one to do that to. So in Libra, you can apply pressure to Facebook and Visa, MasterCard, and get them to shelve those plants. You can't do that in Bitcoin. And so when we talk about, you know, what's the ultimate risk banning Bitcoin? Unless you're going to ban the internet, you can't ban Bitcoin. You can ban access to the exchanges, buying and selling it, but you can't ban the system because it works just like... um, they couldn't stop da- downloading music because it was all peer-to-peer. Right. So unless you cut off the internet, you can't stop a peer-to-peer system, a peer-to-peer network. So that's you know the ultimate, can they increase taxes? Yes. Is that bad for Bitcoin and crypto? Yes. Can they increase the KYC AML, so the know your, know your customer anti-money laundering? Yes. Are they going to do all this stuff? Probably. Mm-hmm. They, of course, it's a, it's a threat to their monopoly power on coinage and seniorage mm-hmm. of their ability to print money and divvy it out to who they want to. Right. Yeah, but, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I just, there's stuff they can do, but I just feel like there's so much unstoppability and inevitability to a lot of aspects like to this, you know. And every day, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Fidelity, Tesla, MicroStrategy, Visa, PayPal, MasterCard, like go down Venmo, go down the list. Every day that they don't cut the head off this, it grows stronger. Mm-hmm. New companies get in, the moat becomes bigger, it becomes harder. The more they, they estimate, you know, roughly 50, 60% of all Bitcoin is held in the US. Wow. So why would you willingly? destroy $600 billion in capital of your own citizens' wealth. Yeah, would be bad. That would be a horrible thing. Um, yeah, they'll probably do something a little bit different. But it sounds like the horse has left the barn and there's no way to pull it back in. You know, it seems like it's going to continue to grow. It's going to continue to get um, adoption. And the adoption rates are slowly but surely um, are going to grow. Mm-hmm. And as it grows, that means that the value of the coin is going to go up in the long term. Yeah. That's just my my. You know, you only have a handful where you have these companies are going to, um, I know Tesla had to figure out a way to hedge the currency as a way to uh, utilize it on their balance sheet, not only as an asset, but to get people to buy and sell their cars with Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. They actually had to figure out a way to lock in the value of it for the transaction, which I thought was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and other com- companies are uh, micro strategies paying their directors in Bitcoin now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, there's a lot of companies out there that are going to be doing, um, there's a company that actually lends Bitcoin. It's a Bitcoin lender that trades publicly um, called Silvergate Capital. And that trades in parity, basically the stock trades in parity with the value of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. But they're actually going to be utilizing Bitcoin as a, a collateral to make loans. Mm-hmm. So it seems like that the innovation is just, uh, it's a much larger market. And there's probably much more to it than a, that we're gonna we're gonna discover down the road with a lot more innovation um, that will make it a more legitimate currency because when you talk to the average person on the street, well, yeah, they see people getting rich on this stuff, but the average person's like, no, I don't own any of that. I wouldn't I wouldn't own that. The naysayers, they've your average person's gonna listen to the naysayers where the person who's not average is going to 
do the research and figure out that this is something that really has legs long term. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, and you know, the, it this is a new technology, and there's the classic adoption curve. You look at every technology. You know, look at the growth of, I wish we had the charts here, but the growth of the telephone in the house, the radio in the house, the internet, all these products, they follow, these new inventions follow an S-curve. Right. Isn't it the Bass Rogers model? Are you familiar with that? The innovation adoption calculation. It's an actual thing where you you start off. um, I know guys use it to evaluate intellectual property Hmm. to figure out, you know, what is it worth today? What is it worth when it becomes? And they, you know... But it's like called the Bass Rogers model, which is really interesting. Not to get too deep mm-hmm, and boring mm-hmm. into this, but yeah, you're right. The innov- so it's going to take time uh, for it to do it. But you know, I mean, uh, once somebody actually told me, you know, overnight success is 20 years, right? So where do you think we're going to be 20 years from now with Bitcoin? It's just hard to predict. But yeah. I'm, say, yeah. I'm not. I'm not going to hold you to an answer. But if you if you had to guess, what would you think the long term is? You know, I think long term here, um, it's going to be much larger than it is today. Bitcoin is going to start, and we've already seen it, it's going to start overtaking other asset classes and subsuming their functions, what they're currently doing now. So let's, I'll just start with gold as an example. Gold, $10 trillion market cap. Bitcoin, let's call it a trillion dollars. Of the 10 trillion in gold, seven, roughly 7 trillion of that is a store of value function. 3 trillion is for industrial use, so jewelry and electronic, et cetera. Right. So Bitcoin, we're seeing money flowing out of gold and into Bitcoin. Which I found very interesting, by the way. And we, actually, our own portfolio has gold and silver in it as a hedge against inflation. Yes. And with all the inflation talk, guess what happened? Gold, didn't, it, it, it peaked and then... And it, it just think because people were saying the inflation was coming, gold peaks, mm-hmm. right? And then all of a sudden it sells off and Bitcoin's taken off. Mm-hmm. And people are, you, you're right, they're using it as a hedge against inflation. Mm-hmm. And that's why it was created in initially, right? Sure. But more and more, I think the institutions are wising up to say, um, you know, let's try, let's, you know, look, look what's going up. Let's move our money out of, and guess what we did? We did the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. We cut back our position mm-hmm. and said, okay, let's do that. And we put it into... Um, something called TPAY, TPAY, mm-hmm. which was all, you know, it's an exchange-traded fund that was basically, it basically has a correlation to Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not exactly the Bitcoin. We don't want that kind of volatility in our model, but electronic payment systems and anything that, you know, had to do with blockchain, you know, Bitcoin-related, mm-hmm. Ethereum, it's in that, it's in there. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's, it's going to follow the path. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. That's 100% correct, by the way. So, we had to react or it's a look, it's adapt or die, right? Sure. You know? Sure. And you know, I'm sure I'm sure that, that fund is doing pretty well. And look, I mean it's just uh, when you have something that is stronger, harder, faster, more secure, Bitcoin can deliver more force than gold can. Mm-hmm. Try and try and send a hundred million dollars of gold around the world. It'll take you a couple months. Arm guards, arm ships, a lot of gas, a lot of, uh, then you need a vault, then you need people to guard the vault, then you need, you know, it's yeah, storage fees, storage fees. And so every year your goal just for storage fees, you got to pay what? One, 2% a year. 
Yeah. So and right, you, and you're not making one or two percent a year. There's no dividend on gold. There's no dividend. There's no cash flow. That's interesting. And so Bitcoin, you know, if you're in Singapore right now, I could press a button, deliver a hundred million dollars to you. It'll cost me about five dollars. That's a lot. And you have final settlement. So when that hundred million dollars in your account, it's that's yours, and that's final settlement. That's another difference here with Bitcoin. It's it's a bearer instrument. It's just it's the same as holding gold, where I give you gold. That's the end of the transaction. Okay, right. So. No, that's true. So just to um, to wrap things up, I wanted to mm-hmm. touch upon the fact that you'll hear politicians say, "Well, there's a lot of criminal activity done with Bitcoin." Maybe in the beginning, right? But now with blockchain, how is it even possible to do a criminal activity when both sides of the transaction must, must be verified through the blockchain? And it's almost like you would be an idiot to commit a crime, especially after the Silk Road, um, mm-hmm. you know, where they shut down the Silk Road um, and the dark web, uh, and they were trading uh, Bitcoin for drugs. That is no longer the case. Is that, is that correct? You can't. Yes. You'd be a fool to create a, a crime with anything other than cash or, or a Bitcoin. I listen, it's really interesting. And that's the way we're endorsing criminal activity. No, no, of course. But it's, it's the point that, you know, why, if I'm going to commit a crime, a digital crime, let's say, why would I use something that could tie me back to that transaction on a public blockchain? Everyone can see every transaction that's ever happened on Bitcoin. Right. There's a public ledger. So when I heard um, this FBI agent in the Financial Counterterrorism Unit uh, on a podcast about a year ago, he said, look, criminals use, we all know this, they use U.S. dollars. Right. It's, if, you, if you could use one perfect thing, it's cash because it's untraceable. It's, well, you could trace the serial numbers, but it's, you could, that's the easiest thing to hide your illicit activities. And in the traditional banking system, this doesn't get reported much, but they launder $2 trillion a year. Wow, I didn't know the number was that big. $2 trillion a year gets laundered through our legal financial system. And in Bitcoin, the numbers now are that it's roughly 03 to 0.4% of all transactions are tied to some form of illicit activity. So, and that number has gone down every year, it goes down and down. The more people like you and I that own it that are not criminals, the more that number goes down. And so if I'm a criminal, I'm going to choose the U.S. dollar over Bitcoin. And you look at the traditional financial system, they're, you know, in, in, if you could interpret that in some ways like a legal criminal enterprise where they're, you know, laundering $2 trillion and they pay fines of a couple hundred million. Right. And that's it. The slap on the wrist. That's cost of doing business. Yeah, that's <laughs> unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. And the, even with the Patriot Act, even with all the regulations, even with the, you, like you said, the anti-money laundering training that I know I have to take every year, um, you know, we it's unbelievable to me that they can get still squeeze two trillion dollars through the system, probably through shell corporations and and, and corrupt folks. But mm-hmm. you can't do that on the blockchain. Is what you're saying? Correct. I mean, look at the Panama Papers. Remember that story about the offshore banking in in Panama. All the billionaires and all these companies were using, you know, all these shell corporations to hide trillions of dollars in wealth. And nothing happens. Right. It's interesting. You know, it, <laughs> that, that whole side of the system, it, you know, there's a lot more um, 
funny business that goes on behind the scenes. Yeah, that's super interesting. Mm -hmm. So. Um, you know, I just wanted to thank you um, for, for coming on the show. And uh, again, uh, as a, an investment advisor, I get a lot of questions about buying Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. um, how do I invest in it? Um, what, you know, what do you, uh, I'm not saying we're here to endorse anybody, but if, um, you know, before we wrap it up, if someone says that they're interested in buying cryptocurrency, mm -hmm. um, you know, I know uh, some of the apps like Cash App, I could buy, you know, a little cryptocurrency, whatever. Yep. Um, what do you recommend people do if they wanted to say invest some money into into Bitcoin? Sure. What would you? Where would you steer them? Sure. I'd say, yeah, definitely look at Square and you know, there's Swan, there's Coinbase, there's Kraken, Gemini. I mean, there's a variety of really high quality, reputable firms out there. Um, my the advice that I give everyone, my family and friends, is if you're starting at zero. You know, you want to put a little bit in there to kind of prime the pump. Let's say, it depends how much you want to invest, but let's say you want to invest $10,000. i am going to put two, three, four thousand dollars $4,000 in there to start. And then I'm going to set up an auto buy, just like I do with a, a 401k. Right. You know, I'm going to set up an auto buy to dollar cost average my Bitcoin position. So every two weeks or every month, I'm going to buy $500 worth of Bitcoin, $750, whatever that number is for you. And then you just set it and forget it. The price of Bitcoin goes up. I buy. If it goes down, I buy more. Mm -hmm. And you, you know, that's what I like to do for all my finances. I like to just have the technology work for me. Take the emotions out. Take the emotions out. Take the thought process out and just say, look, I'm committing to this investment and I'm going to let the investment do the work for me. Right. Exactly. So a little bit at a time, dollar cost average. Kind of like when you you know you, you get paid, you put a little money in your four hundred and one k. Correct. Yeah, that's that's. Same I concept. think that's great advice. Yeah, and I would. That's the advice I would probably share with. Uh, thank you for sharing that, and sure. I would also share with other folks to say, you know, well, first off, don't put any lump sum in that you're not willing to lose. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't even think we're even, you know, we're that volatile anymore. I think, yeah, we're going to have some volatility. You need to kind of have a little bit of a tough stomach. If you're a nervous Nelly, this is not for you. Correct. Uh, but if you have a strong stomach and you have a long-term time horizon um, and you don't care about the day-to-day, -day, then I think you could be very successful in, in this asset class. Yeah. Does, that, does that sound like a pretty reasonable, a reasonable advice to give somebody? Absolutely. And Good. I'd say at this point, it, it's riskier to not invest. Right. in these assets. FOMO, you know, right? Fear of missing FOMO. out. FOMO. I mean, but what, what happens if Bitcoin becomes a tr $100 trillion asset, you know? Yeah. And you missed it at a trillion. You missed it at $100 billion. It's at, at what point, you know, does it become more financially dangerous to not invest in these assets that are going up at 200 Sure. Year? Well, I think it makes lots of sense. I mean, is the government, you know, borrowing less or more these days? I think we want to, you know, tax us more or less. I mean, right. You know, and how much can our central bank actually do to keep the economy afloat? And for how long? You know, it's unbelievable to me. But like we talked about, you know, a limited supply of Bitcoin. There is there is no limit to how many dollars can be issued. <laughs> they're they're going to try and find it. Yeah, they're going <laughs> to try and find it. But, they're going to try their best to find it. Yeah, and we're already spending our um, our federal budget. I mean, I, have, I don't even know the most recent numbers, but the history has been we're borrowing 40% of our annual budget every single year. Um, and with, with COVID, it's going to be even more. So you have to ask yourself, well, if we're borrowing 40%, imagine if you borrowed 40% of your lifestyle and you only made 100000 and you lived on 140 how quickly 
can you run out? If then again, but if you can print money, you 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 would never run out. But then what happens is you're paying your debts are cheaper and cheaper mm-hmm. dollars. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of risk out. There's a lot of risk in the, I believe in the in the marketplace owning in, in all fiat currency. Mm-hmm. Um, so this this is great. But I want to thank you very much for lending your expertise to our, myself and my listeners here today. Um, do you have any final comments or? Yeah, yeah. I, well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for for having me on the pod. I appreciate it. Um, and you know, this I've been in this game for a couple of years now, and every year I'm in it, the more I learn, the deeper my conviction becomes. The more I want to invest, the more I'm comfortable investing. So, for people just starting off, your conviction is not going to be there. And so, like I said, I, I just get some skin in the game, invest some into it because it'll force you to learn more it you'll want to learn more and that natural curiosity when that takes over that's you know that's that magic moment sure and then in an all risk is a measure of how much you actually know so what might seem risky to you is not risky to somebody else correct so if someone wants to open up a donut shop who's got 30 years making donuts guess how much how risky that venture is for them mm-hmm. but if it's your first time you know, making donuts guess how risky that venture very right significantly more yeah. so steve jordan uh, i want to thank you very much for coming on the show it was a pleasure and uh, listeners hope you enjoyed the podcast if you have any questions you can uh, inbox me or send me a message on facebook or twitter um, we're also on instagram we'll be posting and uh, i want to thank you for listening and hope you all have a good day again it's mark papa and uh, chief investment officer of financial resources and uh, cryptocurrency expert uh, our guest Stephen jordan thanks again and have a great day